Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. The song that we sang said we will overcome in that Jesus' name. The reason we will overcome in Jesus' name is because he overcame, become a part. There is no overcomer in this whole wide world except that one man. That one God-man. That's why Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, because there is no other way. There is no other overcomer. And we enter into that by faith. Faith in what God says, not by the faith in what our senses tell us all the time, but faith in what God says, and that faith in what God says moves us to act in obedience to what he says. That's what, how we know we have faith if we actually respond and are obedient to it. And that is in contrast to what anyone else says. Let God be true and every man a liar. What God says is true. And when God says it, we believe it. At least we're called to believe it. That's our faith. Well, it doesn't look true. It doesn't feel true. It somehow another, there's another narrative that seems more true than what God says. That's where faith comes in at. And of course, there's many, many, um, it's not just believe something, uh, leave in the dark. It is many, many, um, assurances of our faith, there are many of them also, and yet it is still a walk of faith. God does not make it so clear that you can do it without faith. So faith is the victory that overcomes the world, which is the alternative narrative. (laughs) That's what it is. Greetings to you again, and uh, welcome to this part of service. Um, we've been reading through the book of Ruth and studying on it. And like Ruth was gleaning behind the reapers, we were gleaning some truths from God's word. And Ruth, she went with some expectation to a field that morning. She had an expectation that she would get a little bit of grain. And of course, as she walked along, she happened to come upon this field. And that can be likened to us. We, uh, we come into life and we, uh, have some, some expectation. We hope we can get something out of life. And we happen to come upon the Bible. <laughs> 
And we do get some sustenance, but then the owner of the field comes down to Ruth and her life begins to take a major change and shift. And as we meet the author of the Bible, of the book, our life takes a major shift. And it begins to prosper in ways that we hadn't even planned. But just like Boaz doesn't take Ruth directly into his family, so the Lord doesn't take us directly home. Well, we don't know when we're going to go home, like we heard this morning. We don't know when. But we are here in that walk of faith, and that's where Ruth was at when we left her. She was. She had met the owner of the field. She was beginning to be blessed. And I will see what happens next. So, Okay, let's just pause for a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this morning, this bright, sunshiny, spring-feeling morning. But, Lord, even as our senses, we enjoy this weather, we enjoy this time of year, and uh, it's an enjoyable time, we need not be deceived, but there is much darkness and coldness and storms in our heart, in people's hearts, Lord, even in this room, Lord. And so, Lord, as we uh, as we look at outside and we can see things look so nice, we realize not everything is that way in our hearts. And it's a battle, and it's a struggle, and it's a, it's a walk of faith. So, Lord, we ask you, Lord, to meet with us this morning, instruct us from your word, give us some sustenance as we glean from your word. Come and speak to us as Boaz came and spoke to Ruth. And then, Lord... Help us to go home with a bundle full of what you have given to us. So, Lord, we look to you and ask you to to bless us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, I think we're going to read Ruth, and then we'll do a little bit of review. We'll read uh, the portion that we're going to study this morning. That'll be in Ruth chapter 2. And we'll start at verse 14 to the end of the chapter. And my title is Ruth Has a Good Day. Chapter 2, verse 14. And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime, at mealtime, come thou hither and eat of the bread and dip thy morsel into the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers and he reached her parched corn and she did eat and was sufficed and left. And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean, even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. And let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them, that she may glean them and rebuke her not. So she gleaned in the field until even, and beat out that she had gleaned, and was but an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she brought forth and gave to her what she had reserved after she was sufficed. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today, and where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. 
And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. And Ruth the Moabitess said, He said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. And Naomi said unto Ruth her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest, and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Ruth, that delightful little story of failure, tragedy, and love and redemption. And it happened, of course, like I said, in the days when the judges ruled. You know, we think we live in tumultuous times. (laughs) We do. We have a divided country. We have presidents and we have press and we have all kinds of things going on. And it is, it's a turmoil. But compared to the time of the judges, I would say we would probably choose this country rather than that time. That was a time of turmoil, that time of history when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But Ruth gives us that glimpse of a family life and a village life in the middle of that time. So while we tend to stereotype certain periods of time, we realize there are exceptions in everything. And so we can stereotype whatever you want to stereotype, and there are exceptions in all of those things. And I'm not going to go, I could name a number of things we stereotype, but I'm going to get into controversy, so I'll stay out of that. But we also read, as we study this morning, we also read that this is part of Scripture. And Paul told Timothy that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay? And it is profitable for doctrine, for teaching that is, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So what we read this morning is scripture. And it is for us today. Now it's Old Testament and we have to put things in context, but they are written for our examples. So, some review. I want feedback. How much time was covered in the uh, first chapter? What was the time period? Say it out. Ten years. What is the main event in the beginning of the first chapter? Famine. Is that what I heard? Okay. Famine and one other thing. Migration, those are the two exact words I had. (laughs) Did you say that? Okay, good. Famine and migration, that's what happened at first. Next is a two-part question. Was it a good thing to leave the land of Israel and go to Moab? And the question is here, was it morally okay to go? Was it consequentially good to go? (laughs) First one, was it morally okay to go? What did we come up with? 
Probably. Probably or probably not. The what? Is it wise to move to the city? I'm sorry, what? Is it wise to move to the city? Is it wise to move to the city? <laughs> well, it's not quite the same context, okay? They moved out of God's promised land to a neighboring country. So if you call it a city is moving out of God's promised land, then they can say that, okay? So I think we're apples and oranges there. Um, we generally recognize it's a negative thing. Not absolutely forbidden, though, okay? But generally a negative thing. Why was it generally negative? Well, first of all, God had given them the promised land, and the consequences then were negative. That's the thing. So, in fact, what they did, what Elimelech did, is he took his family into a heathen environment. That's what he did. And the consequences, of course, that they um, married more by these women. That was my next question, and I answered it. Okay. <laughs> we don't know how difficult it was in Israel during that day. There probably was an enemy coming in, creating the famine. There was not enough food, and it was really tough. So we want to be hesitant how hard we judge them. But not everybody moved out. Some of the people who stayed back may have died from either famine or the enemy. But they moved out and they faced what they did. Okay, what story? The story changes distinctly early on in the chapter. What is that event that changes that story distinctly? Okay, that's not, that was part of the consequences or part, that doesn't, that's not the main change. Anything else? They returned. They returned. There was that chapter in verse 2, in chapter 2, rather. I'm sorry, chapter 1, we're still in that. Chapter 1, in verse 6, where she... And she arose with her daughters. That was the idea like the prodigal son. There was a time when they came to the end of it and said, we're going to go back. That was the change. Now, uh, was Naomi an excellent witness to her daughters-in-law? And we say, uh, no, she was not a very good witness. Now, I'd like to think of who was numerally... Numerically, who was probably the most successful prophet in the Old Testament? Any ideas? How many, how many converts did he have? Jonah. Jonah had a sermon of eight words, <laughs> at least recorded, and the whole city turned. Was Jonah the best example of a good prophet? <laughs> uh, I had come to the place where I think God does things in spite of us. In fact, he does it in spite of us. Naomi was not a good witness. But here comes Ruth. Ruth. <sighs> 
How do we know Ruth's conversion to the God of Israel was real? Any ideas? How do we know it was real? Well, that's maybe a little broad question. It's what she said in the face of opposition. I mean, Naomi tried to persuade her and couldn't. That's that's an evidence. When someone has a conversion and someone else tried to dissuade them and can't, that's evidence something has happened. And it's also by what she said. Uh, what did you say? It's also what she did. It's what she said in the face of opposition, and it's also what she did. She forsook her land, her people, her gods, her culture for Naomi's God and people. And so then we had those four points. She chose with Naomi a common place, a common people, a common theology, and a common destiny. Chapter 2 covers how much time? Anybody remember? One day. Except for last verse. <laughs> That's right on. And in that one day, we see the beginning of Ruth's walk with her new God. She gets up and she avails herself to God's provision, which in this case was gleaning. And as she walks in faith to God's written word, she gets up and acts on God's written word. God is working behind the scenes. And she happens to start gleaning in a field belonging to Boaz. And Boaz comes out in mid-morning to check on the harvest process, progress, and he notices this strange woman. And then he goes, after he inquires about her, he goes out and talks to her and basically, essence says, welcome, we're glad you're here. <laughs> but, then we ask the question, well, did he do that with every gleaner? I mean, there were gleaners. Did he do that to everybody? And he actually answers. She actually said, well, why are you doing this to me? Why are you blessing me this way? And he says, well, I know. It is known that you, let me see. Um, I know about everything you had done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. And I want to bless you. That's what he said. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. You know, in that Short discourse, Boaz hit every one of those four points. A common place, a common people, a common theology, and a common destiny. You study that out. I'm not going to start, take the time to do that, but they're all in there. Boaz had really nothing to offer. I mean, Ruth had really nothing to offer Boaz. She was no benefit to him. She, he, he had no responsibility towards her except what the law required to, you know, let the corners of the field go. That's all he had to do. In fact, her people, the Moabites, were hostile towards uh, the Jews. But like we said last time, he was a godly man and he recognized a true convert when he saw one. 
it was not just words. He saw a testimony. He saw not just a testimony, but he saw action, a, a profession. He saw reality, and it caused admiration to rise in his heart. Okay, now we'll start at verse 14. Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached the parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. There is a lot in that verse that you will never get in these old English, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but at lunchtime, he said, Time for lunch. You ever hear that? Dinner time. Dinner time. And she's out there working and she says, me? He said, yes, you. Come on over. Come on over and eat with us. Now you have to wonder, did she have anything along to eat? She was very poor. Well, she could have ate like the disciples did. When Jesus and the disciples, one, one day, they were. it was probably barley what they went out to do. It might have been wheat. But she could have just took those bare grains of wheat and put them in her mouth like we did and you chew them long enough they get moist and then you can actually eat you can actually eat uh, barley and wheat right out right off the head not very palatable so we don't know what she had but she came to lunch and she had bread and they had that vinegar they say i I'd imagine some kind of a sauce they dipped it into probably so i don't know what it would have been but if you uh if you ever had um you got Texas toast or garlic bread or something like that. You can imagine just have the bread and you dip it into the garlic. Let's say it that way. That's a little bit what they, what I imagine they had. But that was for the regular employees, and she was not an employee. Not only that, Boaz ate with these employees that day. I don't know if he did every day or not, but that day he ate with the employees there. And then it says he reached her some parched grain. Now, reached her means he handed her. This is the, uh, the in- interesting English. And the roasted grain is, well, I don't know if you ever had roasted, roasted, roasted soybeans or something like that. Roasted is a whole lot better than raw. You know, it just is more palatable. And then it says, and she was sufficed and left. Now, what that means, he gave Boaz gave Ruth too much. She couldn't eat it all. She got full. And she still had some left over. So she did the doggy bag thing. If you read later on, she took the rest. She put it, probably put it in a little napkin or something and she took it along home to, uh, to, uh, to Naomi. So she couldn't eat it all. And I was going to say, and I got ahead of myself, that she left the rest on her plate, but she didn't. She took it along home. Now, here's, a, here's the first point we want to get out of it. She did the doggy bag thing like we do in a restaurant when we can't eat everything that's given to us, right? I know we've done that already. You wouldn't expect her to do anything else, would you? They were poor. When you're faced with poverty and when you're destitute, you have no steady income, you have no provision that you can depend on, 
Frugality and thriftiness is a necessity. Absolutely is. Not like, um, I don't know where this story came, but I heard it probably 30 years ago. Somebody was working and they had a fellow employee who never had any money. And he didn't have any money to buy lunch. He had no lunch and he had no money. So a friend loaned him $5 and he bought it. He soaked and then was five dollars was gone. And you have to wonder, well, maybe if he could have bought a loaf of bread and, you know, he could have done it. He could have spread that out a couple of days, but maybe that was some reason he didn't have money. But not so with, not so with Ruth. Now, frugality is not necessary for us for survival. That means we don't need to be frugal. Right? We can be extravagant and we can be wasteful because we can afford it. Fifteen or twenty years ago, Howard Herr had a children's lesson that I tried to find on the tape ministry and I was not able to. I just remember it. He was in Haiti. He, he lived in Haiti for some years and then he comes home and then he observes things at home. And he had a children's lesson. And he, he had a lesson for the children and he had a lesson for us big children too. And if I remember right, his verse was Proverbs 18.9. And this is the verse. He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. Being lazy is not a virtue, but the waster is on the same moral plane as the lazy person. Then Hal Her talked to the children, and he talked to the children what he sees them do. He sees them going into the bathroom at church, okay? And first thing they do is turn on the water, warm water, and they let it run, then they get the soap, and they're washing their hands, and then they... Go and they wash their hands and then they go to the paper towel. Woom, 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 woom. And they get paper towel and, and he was explaining to them a waster and giving them examples. And of course he goes, I don't remember, he had a whole lot more than I remember, but I remember of course letting the lights on. Oh, and now we have LEDs, doesn't matter anymore. Uh, letting the lights on, letting the doors open in a cold day, uh, refrigerator doors, and I don't know where all he went. But he had a lesson on the children. And yes, wasting food. They talk about that. We are a nation of consumers and wasters. We drive big cars, we build big houses, and we have lots and lots of toys. We throw away lots of food, we spend money here, and we go there, and eat out again, because we want to. Because we can. Because we're not, don't need to be frugal. We have provisions. But I would like to present a little bit, God testifies against us, even as we do that. We are more like the rich man who ate sumptuously every day than we are of the beggar who sat at his gate. 
Now, there's many nuances here, okay? Many nuances, many, many uh, whole things. But I'm just bringing out, as God looks at it, which one are we closest to? And I will say we're closest to the rich man. John Wesley, who changed the face of England and rural America, had a simple philosophy. He said, gain all you can. That sounds American. Save all you can. Well, that sounds disciplined and wise. Then he said, give all you can, which is the reason for the first two. And that is the heart of the child of God, should be heart of a child of God. When I was a boy, my family was invited to my uncle's place for a Sunday dinner. Now, that's lunch for some of you who come out of our area. Sunday dinner, and I remember my aunt and my mom talking <laughs> 40 years ago, had this conversation. And my aunt was telling my mom that, that there was leftover food. One, I remember there was a pot of beans, either baked beans or green beans with some other beans mixed in or whatever it was. And my aunt told my mom, that she's going to have to throw them away because her children do not eat reheated food. Her children will not eat them. So she has to throw all her leftovers away. And we're talking about wastefulness, and we're talking about extravagance, and we're talking about the heart of God. Here's an essay that I read before in a message. And I'm going to read it again. Some of you may not have been here, and it's good to have our memory refreshed anyhow. It's about Mr. and Mrs. Thing. Mr. and Mrs. Thing are a very pleasant and successful couple. At least that's the verdict of people who measure success with a thingometer. When the thingometer is put to work in the life of Mr. and Mrs. Thing, the result is impressive. There he is, sitting on a luxurious and very expensive thing, almost hidden by a number of other things. Things to sit on, things to sit at, things to cook on, and things to eat from, all shiny and new and high quality. Things, things, things. Things to clean with and wash with. Things to clean and things to wash. Things to amuse and things to give pleasure. Things to watch and things to play. Things for the long hot summer and things for the short cold winter. Things for the big thing in which they live and things for the garden and things for the lounge. Things for the kitchen and things for the bedroom. Things on four wheels and things on two wheels and things to put on top of the four wheels and things to pull behind the four wheels and things to add to the interior of the thing on four wheels. Things, things, things. And there in the middle are Mr. and Mrs. Thing, smiling and pleased as punch with things, thinking of more things to add to things, secure in their castle of things. Well, Mr. Thing, I have some bad news for you. Oh, you say you can't hear me because the things are in the way? Well, I just want you to know that your things can't last. 
they're going to pass. There's going to be an end to them. Oh, maybe an error in judgment or maybe a temporary loss of concentration. Or maybe you just pass them off to the second-hand thing dealer. Or maybe they'll wind up a mass mangled metal being towed off to the thing yard. And what about all the things in your house? And then he puts it away. Well, it's time to bed. Put out the cat. Make sure you lock the door. Make sure you to make sure that some thing taker doesn't come and take your away your things. And that's the way life goes, doesn't it? And someday when you die, the only they only put one thing in the box, and it's you. And it's anonymous. I don't know who. There's an old Puritan proverb, Cotton Mather, a Mather or something, ever his name is, had this proverb. He said, Faithfulness begat prosperity. Faithfulness gave birth to prosperity. Faithfulness is the way it is. Begat prosperity. And the daughter consumed the mother. Prosperity is the natural result of faithfulness. But God would have us use the prosperity that faithfulness produces to bless others. Not to waste or consume with extravagance. Ruth was a woman of character. Of that we can clearly, clearly see. Part of her character was not being lazy. That's why she went out to glean. She was a diligent and hard worker. Another part of her character was her frugality. She didn't have much, but it was well taken care of in her possession. So she saved the leftovers. Verse 15 And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not, and let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them that she may glean them, and rebuke her not. Boaz is heaping blessing upon blessing on Ruth. He's given her protection and a permanent place to glean. Then he gave her water, and he gave her a generous lunch. And now he is making sure that her gleaning is going to be prosperous. It's more than the law requires. All they were required by law is to let those edges of the field go and a little bit what drops. But he gave her more. He was going beyond the law. You know, it's... And hardly think if we go beyond the law, what that does in our relationships. But that's what he was doing. He was, she was experiencing more than she expected that morning. It's like the title is Ruth has a good day. The blessings are really coming in. And Boaz is like God to Ruth. But there's something Boaz does not do. What does he not do? Any idea what he does not do? Give her a bucket of grain. 
He doesn't give her grain directly. That's if he so much liked her, wanted to bless her for her character, not for her romance at this point. Why didn't he just say, you know, it's enough of this. You worked hard all morning. You're back. It's hot out there. Here's your grain. Just go on home. (laughs) He doesn't. Not now. He instructs his weepers to waste more grain. And so the grain, he loses grain. He is giving her grain. But he, she has to work for that grain. Why put that grain on the ground and have her pick it up? Why not make a pow for her? You know, but he doesn't do that. God could, don't you think, God could take you and I and put the full-fledged, full growth of the fruit of the Spirit in us from day one. Could he do that? Sure he could. Why doesn't he? Why does he allow us to struggle in the heat of the day, bending over, getting a sore back, and cracked pots, I think, to, and, and only get a little bit of a yield at a time? Why does God do that? Like Boaz, God tests our commitment to him, And he deepens it by hard and laborious labor. And at the end of the day, the grain came from Boaz, but it was hers, gained rightfully. At the end of the day, what we have good in our life, it came from God. Is there anything good in me? It comes from God. But it's ours because of that labor, that listening, that interaction. This morning, I am not a Calvinist. It is not all predetermined. I don't believe in monosynergism, I think they call it. I'm not saying that correctly or pronunciation. It's, it's, it's a, Joint labor, it is. And it's not, I know God knows the future, but we don't. And it's not predetermined in our mind. So God, at the end of the day, it came from him, but it's also ours. There are rightful rewards for the work we do in God's field both personally and also outward. Like the verse says, Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So verse 17, So she gleaned in the field until even, and then beat out that she had gleaned in about an ephah of barley. The best guess that I have is about five and a half gallons. And if I, I saw pictures of it, and I think this is how they, they managed. She probably put 
that grain, five and a half gallon, they didn't have plastic buckets back then. They didn't put them on their head, plastic buckets. Now, maybe they had stone things, but they were pretty heavy. So generally, I think what I can imagine, she had a cloth. She, uh, she put it on her back, and she wrapped the front of the cloth around her forehead, and she carried it on her back, and then she could walk the half a mile or the mile or the mile and a half back to town, however far it was. And so... She put it on her back, tied it, and she walked home. We don't know exactly how she did it, except that I know that she is an example of a Proverbs 31 woman. She didn't have any children at this time, but Proverbs 31, she girded her loins with strength, and she strengthened her arms, and eateth not the bread of idleness. In fact, as I study Ruth, I can see Proverbs 31 all the way through her life also. Proverbs 31 woman. Verse 18, And she took it up and went into the city, and her daughter mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she brought forth and gave to her what she had reserved after she was sufficed. <laughs> now that's, she brought forth and gave to her what she had reserved after she was sufficed. That's talking about her doggy bag, okay? I don't know if you get it or not, but that's what it is. Ruth came home to Naomi. Now what was Naomi doing all day? Uh, we don't really know except that she was home when Ruth got there. Here comes Ruth into the courtyard wherever they're living and she drops down her bundle in front of a clearly surprised Naomi. And then, then she gives her Naomi her doggy bag, her parched grain that she had left over. And then it seems like Naomi finally finds her voice. And she says, where did you glean today? In whose field did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. See, Naomi knew something about gleaning. She knew it's a lot of work to get a little bit of grain. She was expecting maybe she would come home with a quart or a half a gallon of grain, maybe even a whole gallon. But Ruth came home with two weeks of work. And one day, and she knew something's going on here. So, she does what some women do. She begins to talk. <laughs> she gave two questions and one blessing before she ever gave Ruth a chance to respond. <laughs> like someone say, the airbags went off. <clears throat> And her mother-in-law said to her, Why, where did glean? Where hast thou wrought? Blessed be he that taketh knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. So Ruth finally gets a chance to talk. So she tells, like all you husbands who come home to your wife, or you come from your work, and you come to your meal time in the evening, you come and you tell her everything how your day was, right? <laughs> well, Ruth tells Naomi how her day was. She said, you know, I went up this lane and I saw this field and I asked these reapers whether I can glean here. And they said, sure. And I gleaned there. And in the mid-morning, this man came out and he blessed me. And... Um, and then he was really kind. And Naomi, his name is Boaz. Boaz. Yes. 
Boaz. And Naomi's mind has to go back because she knows Boaz. She, it was, it was her husband's family. We don't know if it was a brother or a nephew or an uncle. We don't know anything about their relationship except it was her family. So she knows Boaz. Sure, she knows him. Boy, probably hadn't seen him for years. He used to be my husband's friend. So you were in Boaz's field. Boaz, may he be blessed of the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the dead or the living. In verse 20, it says, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and the dead. You know, this is the same Naomi who came back from Moab bitter, very bitter, very discouraged, very disappointed, actually saying the hand of God is against me. God has, has given me this. And so we have a bitter and discouraged and a hopeless Naomi. But when Ruth came home with this bundle, Ruth, Naomi, gets a little different kind of perspective. She was so bitter that she wanted to change her name. But when her daughter-in-law came home with this bundle of kindness, this big bundle of wheat, barley, of kindness, she knew someone's going up, and then she heard the name Boaz, and she knows someone is being kind to us. Someone has a generous heart. Ruth took the results of that kind and generous heart of Boaz home to Naomi. And bitter, discouraged, and hopeless Naomi was touched by the kindness of someone she had not even met. Now, all you mercy people in this room are already saying, sure, of course we understand that. That's what we do all day long. We are kind to people. We bless people. That's what we're here for. That's our calling. Do you finally see it? <laughs> and yes, some of us need it more than, than we do. We need to see it more. We need to be aware how much our attitudes and actions affect others, and not only others, but even others with whom the people we interact with, interact with. (laughs) That's bad English. Some of you people, some of you remember the story, your children especially, there's a CLE readers, where uh, about the apple that was polished six times, you remember that story? Where a farmer picked a bright red apple from his apple tree and he looked it was just a special apple as he got he said wow this is a nice apple i'm going to take this special apple home to my wife and so he polishes it with his handkerchief i think clean one and he takes it home and his wife she was feeling sad right at the time and he gives her an apple and wow what a nice apple and so she polishes it with her apron and puts it on the shelf to eat later and she goes whistling a tune. Uh, a little later she thinks, oh, her mother, her mother's there, her mother's alone. 
living there on her, sitting there on her rocking chair. She's going to give this apple to her mother. And so she goes to her mother, and her mother was sad, really lonely. Gives the apple to her. Oh, why? What a nice apple. And it makes her happy, and I don't have to go through you all know the story. And she uh, wipes this apple off again. And then she gives the apple to her grocery boy that came. And the grocery boy gave it to his sister, who was a nurse at the children's floor in the hospital. And her, she was, had a bad day when she got the apple because Alice wouldn't eat her food. And they're concerned that she might not get well. This is the girl in the hospital. And so she oh, she's going to take this to this girl. And this girl ate the apple the next day. And uh, the end of the story is the doctor that is really concerned about this girl comes into the room. The apple by now is eaten. Comes into the room and sees Alice much happier. And everything goes, and he goes down the hall whistling. He never even saw the apple, never even heard of the apple. But that apple in the orchard made that doctor happy. Well, Ruth, Boaz made Ruth and Naomi, and it goes down the line. Now, the opposite is true, too. You probably heard of the Duke of Grand Tower, didn't you? The Duke of Grand Tower. Okay, it's an old, old, old reader that we have at home. He gets up one morning, and this is a beautiful morning, like this morning, and he goes to the window back then when you could have big windows and they were open. He opened, he stretches, oh, what a nice morning this is. Wow, this is a beautiful morning. So he gets dressed, and he is putting his, he has a pin to pin his tie on, and he bends the pin. And so he tries to straighten the pin out, and he pricks his finger, and then it drops. And he goes down to pick it up, look for it. When he gets up, he bangs his head on the drawer that's open, and that gets him cross. So he kicks the dresser and hurts his toe. And then by that time, the Duchess, who's getting ready too, wondering what's going on, and he just scolds her for being happy this nice morning. She goes down to the kitchen, and the cook is happily singing. And she didn't like that the cook was happy, so she told her off. And the cook was in a totally different mood by now, so the cook is uh, whatever down in the kitchen, and there is the kitchen girl washing dishes at the kitchen sink, whistling a tune. And she scolds the kitchen girl for five whole minutes for being happy this morning. And the kitchen girl is not happy anymore, so she's there washing dishes still. And here comes the gardener to the open window and just wishes her a nice day. And she, with the washcloth over his face. And he's not happy anymore. So he goes down, and here is the the yard boy sweeping the path, whistling a tune. And he can't stand it, so he boxes his ears. And he goes down the pathway weeping. And then he sees the cat sunning itself in the nice morning sun. So he throws a stone at the cat. About that time, the duke, well, he had his tie on. His his head had stopped hurting and his toe had stopped hurting. He sort of forgot about it. And he looked out the window and saw the yard boy throw a stone at his cat. So he goes and to the other cross and rings the bell and says, Doorman. Send the yard boy here immediately. So here comes the yard boy, white as a sheet. Say, why did you throw a stone at my cat? Well, that he had to because the gardener boxed my ears. Get the gardener in here. So they get the gardener in here, and it goes down the line. Well, 
the 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 kitchen girl wiped, you know, and then they went back to the to the cook and well, how far did we go? And the whole way back to the Duchess. Duchess comes in and sees this whole motley crew of crying and sad people and and so what is going on here? And the Duke says, Yes, what is going on here? Everybody is happy in this nice morning and it's all your fault. And he said, My fault? Yes, he said, You went down and you scolded the cook and then then down like and then she said, Well, but who who made me angry? <laughs> hmm. Remember the bent tie pin? Hmm. Oh yeah. And the whole thing came back to him. Down the line it goes. The point is, God made us, we are not islands to ourselves. God made us social creatures. We interact with each other, and we have impact with each other, and we have impact with people we don't meet. We do. That's the point here. You can spoil somebody's morning, even the cat's morning. Wow, what power we have. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Boaz's kindness hath made an impact on this poor and sad home, like all kindnesses do. But there's more to it. And the next verse says, And Naomi said unto her, This man is near kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. Ruth may not have known that. She probably didn't know Boaz from Bill. She only knew he was a kind man. So after Naomi adds that Boaz is Elimelech's relative, she adds, she uh, when she finds out that from Naomi, when Ruth finds out that it's a close close uh, relative, she adds some more in the next verse. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said, he said unto me also, there's more he said, he said some things more. And I'm not sure why he said, why, it's in, why did the writer say it? Ruth, the Moabitess? It's, we knew, see, from Moab, we knew she's a Moabitess. Why did he put it in right here? <laughs> It's maybe because of contrast there. Because Boaz said something to the Moabitess. That's amazing. He said, this is what it said, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. And then Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. Wow, he didn't just bless me today and give me, and that I prospered with my gleaning. He, I now have a place of work, an invitation. I have security. Basically, I have a steady income. And that all happened in one day. But again, what did Boaz not do? He did not make her an employee. She had the protections of an employee, but she remained a gleaner. A blessed gleaner.
to be sure, but still a gleaner. What could that possibly mean for us? Being kind and blessing somebody does not mean erasing all social or economical or positional authorities. Ah, boundaries, I'm sorry. Positional boundaries. Being kind and blessing someone does not mean erasing all social, economical, and positional boundaries. They are still in place. Society still exists, only it's to exist in that kindness. This, not, this is not communism. It is a safety net for the poor. But there's also rewards given for years of labor and development. Just because you want to be kind to someone doesn't mean that you don't let them in a difficult place. You can bless them in a difficult place, but it is not always kindness to take them out of a difficult place. Else, development and labor will not have its effect that God wants in our lives. It is not a classless society. So verse 23, And so she kept fast to the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Now here's the verse that takes this chapter beyond that one day's time. Everything else to this point was that one day. It, in these several months in this verse, it was probably time where maybe Ruth had numerous interactions with Boaz. We don't know, but we can assume that. Her worthy proprietor. So, she had many blessings. She probably prospered in her gleaning. But we don't want to forget this part. She went early in the morning when the sun was coming up. She went out to glean. And she worked hard in the hot sun. Her back ached. She worked through lunch into the afternoon. She beat the grain out and she went home. And the next day she did it again. And if I remember right, in that, in that environment, in that climate, it does not rain during harvest time. That is totally out of character in their climate. So it was every day except the Sabbath. She worked during that time. So we don't forget that. It was a prosperous time, but it was still hard work. Her initial walk with God, with this new God of Israel, the one, that God in whose wings she had come to trust, under whose wings she had come to trust, that newness can wear off. When you're a new Christian, and then she could have thought, so that's, this is what the rest of my life is going to be like here in Israel. This boring, mundane, hard. I left Moab with its leeks and garlics and onions and all the things. And I can, the, the mind can do funny things to you. You can think of all the good things that happened. 
when you're laboring here and your back is aching and the sun is hot and you're sweating, you can think that can happen to a new Christian. Or it can happen to any Christian when the way gets long and it gets hard. But what we don't know how she felt, but we know what she did. What did she do? She gleaned, as she said, she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest. And said, oh, now it's over. No, no, no. Here comes the wheat harvest. And then she went through the wheat harvest. And she lived with Naomi, it says. This sad little family was getting settled and getting established. And the clause, then she dwelt with Naomi. I think the writer wants us to know that Ruth, she was. She was innocent. She wasn't, she wasn't going to other homes. She wasn't unfaithful. She was being true. And she was devoted to her mother-in-law, so she stayed with her. Okay, the main thing we gleaned this morning, just a little bit of review, is that laziness and wastefulness are of equal moral plane. They're morally equal. Being lazy and being wasteful is morally equal. And number two, that our treatment of others that we meet has a ripple effect on people we don't meet or don't even know. And number three, that our character and our commitment is tested in the long haul, not only in the initial yielding to and believing in God. And now we're ready to start for the next part that Caleb Esh is wondering about. Chapter three. Ruth proposes to Boaz. What are we to make of that? Is that going to be our, our um, is that to be our example of how to get married? <laughs> this chapter two, this is, I did, I'm not going to get into chapter three, I'm just going to need a little bit. We'll see what the Lord has to say the next time, but chapter two cover it one day, except for the last verse. Chapter 3 covers one night. <laughs> Gives a little bit of an idea where we're at, except for the first few verses there where it's part of a day yet. So, let's look what the Lord has for us the next time. Okay. Well, I hope and trust that you could uh, find some, get some gleaning from uh, from the book of Ruth this morning. And may God bless you.